I think I've read more this weekend than ever before. <laughs> I, uh, I, almost, I, I almost finished five books through the weekend, which for me is, uh, I'm not a fast reader, but um, the Lord put something on my heart. Uh, there's, there's a number of things that the congregation is facing, but uh, Pastor Brett and I were communicating uh, long ago about wanting to put together a counseling team uh, in the church. And so in September, we had uh, secured it long ago that we were going to equip a number of folks who were willing to go through the training uh, to help folks and counsel them through difficult times in their life. Uh, it's a program that uh, Bob Hoekstra put together. Bob went to be with the Lord in 2011, but it's a just a wonderful preparation for ministering to one another. And, and counseling is basically begins when someone comes up and says to you, what should I do? You've officially become a counselor. Now, now as we, we start to see, especially uh, in the church in Ephesus, uh, you know, and, and we've gone over this countless times, and for those of you who are new, we're, we're going to revisit it. But remember this, the, this, this letter that Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus, this is a city, again, this is a city that's got an enormous temple to the goddess Artemis, and, and it's, it's sustained and, and provided for by prostitution. Every evening, a thousand temple prostitutes that serviced in the temple would come into the city, which was a trade city, and it was a port city, and they would ply their trade, and the money that they would gain through prostitution would go to the upkeep of the temple. In addition, if you went up to the temple to sacrifice, to consummate your sacrifice, you would pay a tribute uh, to the goddess Artemis, and then you would go into one of the rooms to consummate, whether you wanted a young woman, a young boy, or an animal, you would go in and, and do whatever you do. And the city was affected. Every woman in the city, by the way, every woman in the city uh, was required to, to service uh, as a prostitute uh, two times a year in this temple um, of Artemis. And so the whole city was affected by sexual immorality. There was incest. There was, there'd been rape. There was... Uh, generational sins, uh, there, there was trauma, uh, disease, there was psychological trauma, physiological trauma. You want to talk about a city that's got, I mean, they put, they put the fun in dysfunction, right? I mean, it is a, it's a city that is a mess, and every family in that city is a mess. All of a sudden, this little diminutive rabbi comes into the city, and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, there's a transformation of the city where it becomes one of the strongest churches in the known world at that time and would go on later to be instrumental in planting churches throughout the world. Ephesus was turned right side up. There was even a riot in the city because uh, the, the silversmiths, the union of silversmiths, were losing their business because they were selling these little trinkets of Artemis and nobody was buying them anymore because they had come to know the living God. And they no longer worshipped at the temple of Artemis and, it, and it, it ended up closing its doors as a result of Christian influence and the move of God in the lives of a handful of believers. And so Paul is looking at this body of believers, and as they come in, you know, as, as Bill had said, God doesn't clean his fish before he catches them. He catches them first and cleans them later. So he's got a congregation filled with people who have got trauma. They've got wounds. They've got heartache, physiological, psychological, uh, ad infinitum. I mean, a ton of them. And so, are the twins here? Stop for a minute. Stop. Let's stand up. The twins are here. That's the noise I was hearing. These are the babies we've been praying for. Look at this. The Hoffman's babies. Oh, man. We're so, I, I, I had to do that. I'm sorry. That is an answer to prayer, and it's going to tie in with the message. I'll, I'll make it tie in. I promise. 
Oh, what a bless! I, I got chills. Just oh man, that's so cool. Um, and so here you, you you have all these families that are a mess, and the gospel comes in, and God uses this man and his word to transform a community and heal. And and I know that the women are going through uh, breaking free by Beth Moore, and they've gotten to chapter four, and it's and and this idea of examining these wounds and these hurts, uh, generational sins that you're you're up against. And we're, we're talking about, you know, the Bible says we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air with the spiritual forces. And, and, and there is, there is a, a dominion of darkness that, that preys upon families and, and tries to establish a foothold in a community. And, and a lot of the women in this last study, as they've gone through it, it's almost like lifting up a bandage and you, you see a wound there and, it's, and you're like, oh, now what do we do with it? You almost don't want to see it because now you've got to deal with it. And, and how do you deal with it? How do you minister to it? How do you heal it? And some of these are deep in the lives of many of you. And, and knowing my past and the things I've been through and seeing how God has worked in my life, I look out in the room and, and it represents a myriad of, of struggles and hurts. But God's word is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. And he's mighty to heal. Isaiah 9 says he's the mighty counselor. And as I've been pouring through books on, on intercessory prayer and I've been reading uh, just a, a number of, of, of books to prepare my heart for this and to see what God wants to do and, and preparing for this equipping of the saints unto ministry. Uh, one book in particular I read by a man by the name of Derek Prince. Uh, he was a man, uh, I think he's gone to be with the Lord, but uh, this book was written, written in 1973 called Prayer and Fasting, and it was a powerful book, one of the best I've ever read. I don't even know if it's in print anymore. And uh, he's a man who adopted nine daughters, all from different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, they traveled all over the world. He was uh, educated by, in Cambridge with a master's degree, taught at King's College in Cambridge. Um, a, a wonderful writer, very influential in the body of Christ. Served in Israel during, in 1948 during the war there when they became a nation. They were invaded by every Muslim nation the minute they declared their independence. He served in Kenya when it became a nation and uh, communism was infiltrating and you had Somalia to, the, to, the, to one of the borders and you, you had uh, uh, Tanzania and a number of other, you know, Idi Amin was in power at the time and here Kenya was trying to find its independence and it was, it was through a body of pastors in intercessory prayer that established that nation uh, to, to have a government that was strong. Uh, he talked about serving in World War II and watching as they were in El Alamein and, uh, and the, the, the British forces hadn't won a battle up to that point. And they, they, they were waiting. Uh, there was a, a, a division between uh, the, the uh, officers and the enlisted in, in the British Army. And the officers were, were derelicts and they were, they, they were self-focused and self-consumed and all about their comfort. And uh, there was division within the ranks of the British Empire. And then all of a sudden, General Mon Montgomery comes in, and he was a man that had been raised by an evangelical Anglican uh, minister, and he had a love for, for the Lord and began to instill in his men a servant's heart and reestablish um, the, the strength of the British Army, and they were able to defeat the Germans in El Alamein. And he watched as the power of prayer and intercessory prayer removed one commanding officer and placed another one in there. And, and as I was reading about this man, I was deeply intrigued, and I, I followed a pattern, and here's some of the thoughts that I put down uh, in my readings this weekend, and it relates completely uh, to our Sunday night prayer, because as we stopped at verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God, I want this to all tie in, and you'll get it in a moment. Just track with me, if you would, the power of intercessory prayer. The Bible says that Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father ever living to make intercession for you and me. 
You know, Sunday night is not an exercise in futility because Christians are supposed to pray. I've been walking with the Lord over 20 years, and I have to tell you, in the last six months, I am just now understanding what God meant about prayer. I I am so excited this last Thursday as the pastors gathered for prayer. We're starting to realize a breakthrough that is, we all have chills. It is significant what God is doing. You see, as Christians on the earth, our presence, our presence makes the earth acceptable to God. Some of you aren't believers going, well, I don't get that. I'll explain it. Our presence commends the earth to God's mercy. Our presence commends the earth to God's mercy. Without us, there would be nothing to make the earth acceptable to God. But because we are here, God continues to deal with the earth in grace and mercy rather than in wrath and judgment. It is our presence that makes the difference. And the illustration that I, I, I put together and I want to share this with you, is found in Genesis 18. We won't turn there, but I'm going to give you a, a, a principle. And, and the principle that I want to relate to you in relation to Genesis 18 is this. It is never, and listen to me, it is never the will of God that judgment do the wicked should come upon the righteous. Judgment do the wicked should never come upon the righteous. You see, the idea is we're righteous as Christians, not because we observe the law or that we're better than anyone else. We're righteous by faith. We have trusted that Christ's righteousness and his sacrifice was put on our account and our sins were forgiven by what he did. And his righteousness was put on our account. We didn't earn it. He gave it to us. And as a result, we don't obey the law and observe the law because we have to in order to be saved. We observe and obey the law because we are saved and it's out of gratitude. It's a love relationship. Unlike any relationship in the world, unlike any religion in the world, I should say. And so that's what makes us righteous. Verse 23 of Genesis 18, Abraham asked God a question. He says, will will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked, God? In verse 25, he asks again, he says, that be far from you to do, do after this manner to slay the righteous with the wicked. That be far from you, God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham's saying, God, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked for the judgment that you're going to place on Sodom? Sodom was a wicked city. That's where we get the word Sodom. You can imagine what went on in that city. The angels came to to bring down judgment on it, and, and all the people, all the men of the city, old and young, wanted to have sex with the angels. It was awful. And and Lot was willing to give his daughters to these men. He was messed up too. His mind had been corrupted. If we have been made righteous by faith in Christ, and if we are leading lives that truly express our faith, then it is never God's will that we be included in the judgment which he brings upon the wicked. Now, let's let's understand this. There is persecution for the Christian. Persecution is different than judgment. There is persecution for the sake of righteousness as Christians. Jesus said, as servant is any greater than his master, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. You're always going to be attacked for doing right. But on the other hand, there is God's judgment upon the wicked. Persecution comes from the wicked upon the righteous. But judgment comes from a righteous God upon a wicked people. You see the difference there. Now, here's my point. Christians must therefore be prepared to endure persecution for their faith and their way of life and even to count this as a privilege. The Bible says count it all joy. We even read in Ephesians 5 when it says that, that we're to be thankful in all things. And the word all in the Greek means all. And we give thanks in persecution. We even see that in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Christians should never be included in God's judgment upon the wicked. We see in Psalm 91, a thousand shall fall at thy side and 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come upon thee. Whatever judgment comes as the reward of the wicked or the judgment or what's due the wicked, it should never fall upon the righteous. How do we know this? Exodus chapter 7 through 12. Moses wants to deliver God's people out of Egypt. They're in bondage. And, and in this, this thing, God does a, a 10 judgments of ever-increasing severity upon the Egyptians as, as Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And 10, ten judgments come upon the nation of Egypt, uh, uh, the, the Egyptian nation, and they, they increase in severity. But not one judgment fell upon the people of Israel. Not one. Exodus eleven seven says, But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord has put a difference between the Egyptians, and I encapsulate wicked, and the Israelites encapsulate righteous. They're in a covenant with God. Even dogs knew the difference. Even dogs knew the difference of what God was doing. Now, in Genesis 18, this is where I want to tie in for our prayer on Sunday nights. Track with me. Stay with me. Very, very important. Abraham, in Genesis 18, attempts to ascertain the least number of righteous persons needed to preserve the whole city from judgment. What he does is, is, is he knows his nephew Lot is living in Sodom, and he knows that God's going to judge Sodom, and so he's worried about Lot, and he goes to God and he says, God, I'm telling you, if there's 50 righteous in the city of Sodom, when are you going to save it? Please, God. And he says, okay, 50, that's good. How about 40? Maybe 40. Okay, 40 is good. How about 30? And he goes all the way down. And finally, God says, uh, he says, Abraham, if there's 10 righteous in the city of Sodom, I'll save the city. The Lord finally assures Abraham that if he finds 10 righteous persons in Sodom, he will spare the whole city for the sake of those 10. That's what Jews call today a minion, a minion. If they can get 10 righteous men to gather for prayer, God is present. That's how they look at a minion. We were in Atlanta on our way to Israel. Pastor Marty was there. Pastor Marty comes from an Orthodox Jewish background. He was wearing a hat. He looked Orthodox. Nine of these guys come over. They're trying to put a minion together to pray because it's time for their prayers. And they come over to Marty and they say, will you come and join us? He says, I'm an evangelical Christian. I was raised Orthodox. And they go, but you're Jewish. He says, yeah, I'm a Messianic Jew. He says, okay, come on, you can join us. <laughs> and so they bring him over to, to do this minion. But that's where they get this concept of a minion. Ten righteous would save this city. Now, we know that the city of Ai, which is near Sodom, had a population of 12,000. So we know this to be the case that Sodom itself was no less than 10,000 people. Sodom had a population of around 10,000 people, plus or minus. So God assured Abraham that 10 righteous persons could, by their very presence, preserve a city of 10,000 people. So the ratio is what? One to 1,000. One to 1,000. How many people are in the Conejo Valley? How many people are in Thousand Oaks, let's say? Let's round it up, 130,000. So tonight we need 130 of you to come out. Now don't laugh because last week we had over 60. That just means everyone brings a friend and we're there. Every one of you has 1,000 people that are being protected by your intercessory prayers in this city. You are the light of the world. God has called you to intercede on their behalf. How do we know this? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, and pay attention, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, in my reading, I looked up this term ambassador. Ambassador, a person sent forth in an official capacity 
by a nation's government to represent that government in the territory of another nation. So we are ambassadors of heaven placed in this darkening realm of the Conejo Valley in Thousand Oaks to represent that kingdom of heaven and that ruler, which is Jesus Christ, to establish those principles in this realm. Their authority is not measured by their own personal ability, thank God. Their authority is not measured by their own personal ability. An ambassador doesn't come in and go, you know, I'm going to turn this place. No, they're just one person. But what do they represent? Their authority is not measured by their own personal ability, but is in direct proportion to the authority of the government which they represent. And so in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, what do we find? Real simple. We are citizens of heaven. And as ambassadors, we represent all the authority of heaven. You want to talk about intercessory prayer. You want to talk about the power of prayer and how it's going to affect this city. God's starting to make it real to me, and I'm getting it. You see, the entire might and authority of heaven are behind every word that we speak and every move that we make. You want marriages healed? You want drug addiction removed? Let's call down heaven. We do that in prayer. But I will say this. Before war is declared and judgment is placed by one nation upon another, before war is declared, what does every nation do? They remove their ambassadors. That's called the rapture. Now, I don't know what your eschatology is, but I would just simply say this. God wants to save. And he's called you to intercede. He's interceding for you, and he's called us to intercede for this community. Prayer is vital. We as Christians don't understand the significance of prayer. We don't grasp it. I want to read to you one other thing, and then I'll get into the study. And this is a book that somebody gave to me, and, and it's, it's kind of uh, intense. <laughs> I don't know any other way to <laughs> It's crazy. It's called The Harbinger, and it's a bestseller. And it's a dialogue between uh, a number of people, but uh, a man's being interviewed about his, his interaction with a so-called prophet and the ancient mystery that holds the secret of America's future. And just the way it's written is to create uh, an insight. And it's, it's interesting how this author declares it, and there's a, a dialogue between two people. And, and it begins by saying, uh, in relation to Israel, it says, it is a mystery, said the prophet, a kind of spiritual amnesia. And he's talking about the judgments that came upon ancient Israel that they were a nation that was in covenant with God, and then why judgment came and they were destroyed. It says, when it began, they were still using God's name, but with less and less meaning behind it. Then they started merging him, confusing him with the gods of the other nations, and then they began turning against him, subtly at first, and then outright, then brazenly, driving him out of their national life and bringing in idols to fill the void. The land became covered with idols and altars to foreign gods. They rejected their covenant, abandoned their standards, and exchanged the values that they had lived, always lived by for those that they had never known. Spirituality and sensuality, holiness for profanity, and righteousness for self-interest. They cut themselves off from the faith in which their nation had been established and became strangers to God. As for their most innocent, their little children, they offered them up as sacrifices, literally, they literally offered and killed their own children on the altars of Baal and Molech. We've been studying that on Wednesday nights. These were their newfound gods. And they would offer their children on these altars of Molech for the purpose of financial prosperity. That's how far they descended. Everything was now upside down. What they had once known as right, they now saw as outdated, intolerant, and immoral. 
And what they had once known as immoral, they now championed and celebrated as sacred. They had transformed themselves into the enemies of God they had once worshipped and the faith that they had once followed until the very mention of his name was banned from the public squares. And yet in spite of all this, he was merciful and called to them again and again. The person says, how? Through the prophets? And then the person responds, yes, through the prophets, Elisha, Elijah, Hosea, Amos, pleading with them, warning them, calling them to return, but they never did. He goes on to say, in the history of the world, there's been one other, one other nation that's stepped into a covenant with God. He says, but there was one other, a, civiliz- a civilization also conceived and dedicated to the will of God from its conception, America. In fact, those who laid its foundation, the founding fathers, no long before the founding fathers, those who laid America's foundation saw it as a new Israel, an Israel of the new world. And as with ancient Israel, they saw it as a covenant with God. Meaning its rise and fall would depend on its relationship with God. If it followed his ways, America would become the most blessed, prosperous, and powerful nation on the earth. From the very beginning, they foretold it, and what they foretold would come true. America would rise to its heights no other nation has ever known. Not that it was ever without fault or sin, but it would aspire to fulfill its calling. The person says, what calling? The man responds, to be a vessel of redemption, intercession, an instrument of God's purposes, a light to the world. It would give refuge to the world's poor and needy and hope to its oppressed. It would stand against tyranny. It would fight more than once against the dark movements of the modern world that threatened to engulf the earth. It would liberate millions. And as much as it fulfilled its calling or aspired to, it would become the most blessed and most prosperous, the most powerful and the most revered nation on the earth, just as its founders had prophesied. But there's a but coming, isn't there? The man says, yes, he replied. There was always another side to the covenant. You see, if ancient Israel fell away from God and turned against its, his ways, its blessings would be removed and replaced with curses. But wasn't Israel surrounded by nations far worse? He goes on to say, yes, but they weren't in a covenant with God. And then he said, but Americans don't worship idols. No, said the prophet. They just don't call them idols. As God was expunged from American life, idols came in to fill the void. Idols of sensuality, idols of greed, of money, success, comfort, materialism, pleasure, sexual immorality, self-worship, self-obsession. The sacred increasingly disappeared and the profane took its place. It was another kind of spiritual amnesia. The nation forgot its foundations, its purposes, its callings. The standards and values it had long upheld were now abandoned. What it had once known as immoral is now accepted. Its culture was increasingly corrupted by the corrosion of sexual immorality. Growing continuously more crude and vulgar, a wave of pornography began penetrating its media. The same nation that once had been dedicated to spreading God's light to the nations now filled the world with the pornographic and the obscene. Some would call it tolerance, I said. Yes, he replied, the same tolerance that overtook ancient Israel. A tolerance for everything opposed to God. A growing tolerance for immorality and a growing intolerance for the pure. A tolerance that mocked, marginalized, condemned those who remained faithful to the values now being discarded. Innocence was ridiculed and virtue was vilified. Children were taught of sexual immorality in public schools while the word of God was banned. It was a tolerance that put the profane on public display and removed nativity scenes from public sight. Contraband, as if somehow they had become a threat, a strangely intolerant tolerance. As I read that, I was heavy in my heart, especially with what's taking place in Aurora, Colorado. Folks, 
we don't battle against flesh and blood. There's a war going on for the souls of mankind. It's not going to be done through our vain imaginations and our brilliance. It's going to be us on our knees in dependence of God, crying out to Him and acting as though God has called His children to be, and that is righteous and set apart, justified and sanctified for His purposes. Prayer is His heart. My Father's house will be called a house of prayer. And as we look at this fact that in, an, in, in a city of 130,000, if we can get 130 Christians interceding on behalf of this city, we're going to watch marriages heal. We're going to watch drug addictions dissipate. We're going to learn how to pray. The disciples said Jesus teaches how to pray. It's so foreign to us. We think we go to God with our laundry list as he's a cosmic genie in the sky, and if he doesn't answer our requests, we quit. We don't understand what it means to labor and to intercede on behalf of those who are broken. We don't know what it means to pray his word and to declare his promises. I'm just starting to learn this, and I want to lead you into the same regard. We've been laboring to build this prayer service, and we're watching as we have numbers we've never seen before. Not only are we getting prayer requests now, but we're getting praise reports. Praise reports that will blow your mind. You're looking at two babies that shouldn't be here as a result of the power of prayer. I tied it in, do you see? That's God. God heals marriages. He heals wounds. He's a mighty counselor. His grace is sufficient. His word does not return void. He wants to teach us how to intercede on behalf of our community. And so as we're looking at this, this letter to the church at Ephesus, and Paul's gone through this picture of who we are in Christ, and he's taking a handful of people who are living in a city that has just been inundated with misery, you want to talk about wounds. You want to talk about generational sins. You want to talk about demonic authorities. You want to talk about principalities and powers that you can't even fathom. I've been in rooms where it's creepy. You don't want to examine it or think it's there, but it, it, it's there. And then we talk about the psychological wounds and the physiological wounds, and we tie all those together, and then we bring in you know, medical issues. We bring in, we, we bring in drug issues. We throw all that into the mix and all the disparity and the heartache and the misery that is permeated on a culture. And then all of a sudden, a, a church is planted and a community is transformed. How? Paul lays it out. This is who you are, Christian. This is, you're an ambassador. And this is the power. You have been chosen and, and, and if you, you, from the foundation of the world. I chose you to be adopted and redeemed and forgiven and delivered and empowered. All the resources of heaven, you are my ambassador and you represent the authority. Your word, based on my will, transforms an entire community by your faithfulness to seek my purposes and my will. As he develops this, he's going to go into the restructuring and the, and the healing of a family. There's families. I mean, we, we can just get to verse 22 uh, in our study this morning where it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And immediately there are going to be women in the room whose hearts are going to be just crushed. The only men they've known in their life are, are authoritative, overbearing, abusive men. And that concept of submission is a wound that goes deep. There isn't a man on the planet they trust. We're going to get into the picture of husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. They've never known anything but how to love themselves. They take more delicate care in shaving their face than they do in speaking to their wives. 
Their words cut deeper than their razor would ever even imagine to cut on their face. We're going to get into how to reestablish a family. I can lay out the roles, but unless we embrace verse 21, the roles are worthless. You see, in this passage that I had us stand and recite together, and then I prayed and said, God, would you, would you instill this? Would you root this in our heart? Let's not move forward till we grasp this. It's very powerful because it's simple in its statement. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. You see, in our culture, in our culture, the cry is, how can I fulfill myself? How can I find fulfillment in life? We, we look at a situation, our very first question is, what will I get out of this? What's in it for me? We have labor disputes. We're struggling over labor unions. We're stu- struggling over ownership. We've got, we've got class warfare as though the rich are somehow awful and, and, the, and, the, and they need to pay their fair share. And, and we've got class warfare. And somehow to be rich in this nation, is, is you're, you're awful. And so you have the labor and then you have the owners and, and, the, and the owners are saying, wait a minute, I'm the one who built this business. It was my investment. It was my life on the line. I worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week and poured my life into it, put my house on the line and I, I built a job for you. You wouldn't have a job if I didn't make the investment. And the workers are saying, well, you wouldn't have a widget to sell if I didn't make it. And then there's conflict and all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you come to loggerheads and then the government comes in and says, oh, uh, we see an issue with labor and management. So we'll just take the whole company and call it Government Motors. And that's real helpful, isn't it? I mean, the, the products that the government produces. I mean, they're on time and they're always under budget. And they're just magnificent products. I, mean, I, 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 I look forward to going to the DMV. It's one of my highlights of my life. I love going to the Social Security Department. That, that is another highlight of my life. I love the lines. I love the looks. And I can't wait until healthcare is completely managed by the government. That is going to be one of my favorites. And I, it's going to be way better. It's going to be way better. But why are we at this place? Because people are without and others have. We have a war. People are hurting. Why is it that divorce is rampant? Because I want something. James says, where do wars come from? Not getting what you want. And so all of life is established by this fundamental principle that I am here to fulfill my life. I want to be happy. Our founding father said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Certain inalienable rights endowed by our creator, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a covenant with God, by the way. The only other nation in the world that's done that. France was liberty, equality, fraternity. But ours is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness endowed by our creator. Rights don't come from man, they come from God. Rights don't come from, from man, they come from God. But we don't exercise them, we lose them. They're like muscles. And as we come to this place and we look at our government and we think that, that it's all about me, government breaks down. Government's destroyed. You're just going to try to get into that position of authority. You get a government job, now you can lord it over somebody and as long as you've got that pension, you're set to go and the rest of us will struggle and after a while, the whole system breaks down as it is in Europe. If you're going to get what you want out of life, yeah, God gave you those desires. He gave you that heart to succeed. 
But here's what happens in life with that principle. I want what I want. And so you come into a relationship with another human being who wants what they want. And you have an accident. You have a collision. Then you have a war. And you fight until one of you dies. And it's a scorched earth policy. As long as I can get it, fine. To hell with the rest of you. And then the Lord comes on the scene and he looks at a city that's inundated with self-indulgence, self-focus, self-desire. He says, I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. This is not life. This is destruction. And he turns the entire city of Ephesus right side up by one verse, submitting to one another in the fear of God. What does he do? How does he, how, how does he change this? He knows that, that, that we've been created with inward urges to be happy and to gain satisfaction in life. But the realization is that we are dependent upon others achieving that as well. We're intertwined. We're part of a family. When we step into the world and we say, what is in it for me? We destroy. We're an enemy of darkness. This puts us in a collision course with those who seek to do the exact same thing. They become rivals, enemies, obstacles. And then we develop governments where we call it liberty, equality, fraternity. If you're part of my fraternity, then, then we're equal because if we agree on the same thing, then we can fight for it together. And, and, then, and then you can have liberty only if you're one of us. You're not one of us. What was the symbol of the French Revolution? The guillotine. You're not with us, you die. How did America come to be the melting pot of the world where we can incorporate all of these different ideas and still work together? How is it that our founding fathers in a covenant with God understood this? Inalienable rights endowed by our creator. Two radical patterns that we find in verse 21. Two radical patterns in the next six minutes. Real simple. Here's the first pattern that we find, this radical pattern of the first one of two. Here's the first in verse 21. You ready? Look at it. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Again, let's read it together. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Here's the first radical pattern. Pay attention. Here it is. This verse, by inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul wrote it to the, to the citizens of Ephesus, he said, every relationship you enter into is subject to a third party. Every relationship that you enter into is subject to a third party. There's a third party in every relationship you enter into. I mean, look at it. It begins, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. There's the Lord, third party. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ. Love the church, third party. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Verse 4 of chapter 6, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity as to Christ, third party. Verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but bondservants of Christ doing the will of God, third party. 
Verse 9, and you masters, do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master, third party, also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Third party. Every relationship that we enter into is subject to a third party, and that's the Lord. And that brings us to the second principle of the verse. In every relationship you enter into, and pay attention, every relationship you enter into, you no longer ask, what's in it for me? You no longer ask, what do I want? You now say, God, what do you want? God, what do you want? You know what prayer is? Asking God what he wants. I'm getting it now. I'm a little slow. It's taken me years. That's the significance of prayer. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. If any man would seek to save his life, he will lose it. If any man loses his life, he will gain it. You want to fight for your rights? You want to demand your rights? You're going to lose your life. You lay down your life, you get a whole new one. You see, in marriage, the man initiates by laying down his life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He laid down his life. He's the groom, we're the bride. He laid his life down. In response to him laying down his life, we lay our life down. And we say, God, take my life. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And the two become one flesh. And the Bible says, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. We become of like mind and having the same love, same purpose. It happens in marriage. I lay my life down. I come to serve my wife. Yes, there's a general. Yes, there's, there's a private. And everyone has an order and authority. It doesn't mean that it's communism. It doesn't mean that everyone has no authority. God establishes authority. He will in the family. But he says the general doesn't come and lord it over and say, shut up, do as you're told and like it. And if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. That's not a marriage. A husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church. He serves her, but he's still in charge of the decisions. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. They're fallen creatures. They have issues. There's no man worthy of submission. But God says, don't submit to them. Submit to me. I'm the third party. I change change the whole pattern. And in doing this, watch. You're going to gain a whole new life. You're going to learn things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You, You can't have your rights by insisting on them. You can't have your rights by insisting on them. You're only going to have war. You can only gain them when you seek to give others theirs. And you come to serve. What did Jesus do? He left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross. Why? To set the captives free. To give you freedom. Freedom. Rights. Slaves don't have rights. He became a servant to set you free. What did he do? He humbled himself. Do you think nails hold God to the cross? Jesus said, no man takes my life. (laughs) I willingly lay it down. He wanted to. Why? For you and me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Why? So that you would be of like mind and love him the same. And what would you do? You'd do the same. You'd intercede on behalf of those who are lost. 
There are a thousand people in this community counting on you. What do you have to do tonight that's more important? I'm so thankful God didn't have anything more important to do than to come to the cross on our behalf. I'm so happy to have been delivered, to have been set free, to be forgiven and cleansed and have my, my family and my life healed. The generational wounds tended to by the tenderness of his saints. There are many of you in this room that have been given the gift of discernment and the gift of ministry, the gift of helps to come alongside and help the hurting. But we're occupied with the things of this world. We're not doing our duty as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. And God's called us that we would submit to one another in the fear of God. What we do, we do is unto the Lord. Listen, not because we have to, but because we get to. We do the things we do motivated by love. That's why Paul took all the previous chapters of, uh, of, of, of Ephesians to declare who you are in the Lord. This is what he's done for you. Now let's do this and fix this community. Let's transform Ephesus and let's transform Thousand Oaks, Newberry Park, Agora. Let's do the whole Caneo. Folks, I don't want a shooting at MovieCo. That is incarnate evil and it's real. And we are not battling against flesh and blood and you're not going to be able to figure out some sort of a formula to stave it off and gun control is not going to fix it. We will intercede on, the heart, on behalf of the hearts of men and call the kingdom of heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses. Our Father and us are plural. Prayer is corporate and communal. This is intercessory. This is powerful. It's one thing to go through a systematic study of the scriptures. It's another to intercede in prayer. This is a whole new dimension. And Jesus said, my Father's house will be called a house of prayer. I am finished preaching. For all intents and purposes, I can get in my car and go to the lake house for my vacation. And it's fun up there. But I would not miss tonight. It's more important to me than preaching here on Sunday morning. You people are here and healed because somebody prayed for you. Somebody loved you. We have the distinct privilege to do that for others. And if you can't come, there's no condemnation. But you can certainly fill out a prayer request. And we will join as we intercede on behalf of your thousand that you've been entrusted with. Let's seal this community for the kingdom of heaven. And we will do it on our knees as he will teach us how to pray. Amen.